The story of the Industrial Revolution is also the story of an, a massive expansion in finance in the form of stocks, but also in bonds, which is essentially business debt. And so it's possible for these large enterprises to borrow, essentially, from pools of investors. This is part two of a two-part series on consumer debt in the United States. To hear the first part of the episode, listen to episode three of Riches and Power, entitled Consumer Debt, Part One, with Lewis Hyman. It is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other major platform where you get your podcasts. The first part of this episode covered the evolution of consumer debt from something that was broadly abhorred by society and its institutions into something that, by the early 20th century, was a much more normal, accepted part of everyday life. In this part, we pick up where we left off and track consumer debt from broad acceptance into its omnipresence in the life of the modern-day consumer. This is Riches in Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. We're speaking with Professor Lewis Hyman, who is the director of the Institute for Workplace Studies at the ILR School at Cornell University. When you go to get a mortgage on a house, for instance, these days, if you're self-employed, it's materially more difficult to get a mortgage because you have to prove up your income and provide the profit and loss statement for the business. What lenders really want, it seems, is a steady paycheck and a steady address. Did you ever encounter a reason why that paradigm emerged? Well, it started from actually reformers who wanted to think about how we could lend to working class people who at that point were either going to loan sharks or going without coal or going without shoes for their children. And so they said, well, how do we make it possible for these people who have an asset, which is their future earnings, to borrow against that in a way that the wealthy can borrow? And so they conducted a series of reforms uh, to pass laws around the country to enable this kind of lending to occur. So today we think of payday lenders as incredibly exploitative, but in the 1920s, they still charge people a lot of interest, but they were kind of liberatory for a lot of working people. That's fascinating. So you, you have a social movement, and then also coupled with this idea of your future earnings being an asset, which I would assume was a very novel idea in the early 1900s as opposed to the 1800s. Yes. The idea that a working person could have a steady job was inimical to common sense in the 19th century. In the 19th century, jobs were not steady. If you were a wage worker, you would not be able to count on that job. And there was an idea of saving up money called a competence, which would be enough money to live off of. But until you had that, you basically were not free and you wouldn't be able to have any certainty about your future, which is why owning your own farm you know, that kind of thing meant so much to people borrowing a mortgage to, to buy a farm, which is not just a place to live, but a productive asset. And this is, of course, quite different than home mortgages today. And, and home mortgages are the third part of the legitimation of debt. 
because home mortgages in the 1930s by the FHA in response to the Great Depression give the seal of approval for borrowing from the federal government, which nothing like that had happened before. Worldwide, nothing like that had happened before? No, worldwide, nothing like that. American history, the idea that people should borrow to buy houses with government approval and government support uh, was completely new. It came out of the New Deal and and the financial crisis of the early Great Depression, which in a lot of ways was a mortgage crisis because there was there were mortgages in the late 1920s. It was a time of speculative house building, kind of loan called a balloon mortgage, where you would borrow for three to five years and then pay back, pay interest on that loan. And then at the end of that time, pay back the entirety of the amount you had borrowed, the principal. And that's all well and good if you have that principal. But what actually happened was that a lot of people would just roll it back over again and again. And that's fine as long as the investors want to invest money in these kinds of mortgages, which they did in the 1920s. But by the early 1930s, as the depression is coming into being, they didn't want to do that anymore. And so foreclosures swept the country with the collapse of this mortgage market. Uh, Very akin to the 08 financial crisis. Exactly. So when I was writing my dissertation and I saw that balloon mortgages came back, I said, mom, you got to sell your house. But now I'm uh, the favored favored child. Uh, So I wish I had done the big short, then I wouldn't have to work anymore. But, you know, I had a limited imagination because I was a history. Instead, you get to be a historian and that's its own kind of winning. I guess that's that's true in some sense, you know. And so, yeah, it's fun to do my job. But so so this is the story then as well. And what had to happen was you had the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which stabilized the mortgage market in America with swapping the toxic assets for government bonds. Um, this is basically what happened. And But then after that, the FHA said, how do we restore a solid foundation? Because it was the case that Americans needed housing. And one of the interesting things about building a house is you need lots of different kinds of people. You need unskilled labor and semi-skilled labor and highly skilled labor. It requires a lot of you know nails and wood and lots of different kinds of uh, materials. So if you can get the house bu- houses built, you can actually stimulate the economy. This is exactly the idea behind the FHA. And, and is this when the 30-year mortgage, as we know it today, you know, the, the 30-year payback period, fixed interest rate, is that when this came about? Exactly. Although 30 years at that time was considered far too long. A house couldn't last that long. So they did a 20, first to 15 and then a 20. But exactly right. So that you didn't have balloon balloon mortgages anymore. You had what they called a self-amortizing loan so that you paid back the interest and the principal every month. And that loan was capped at a very reasonable rate. I think it was 5% that Roosevelt felt was like the moral number to have. And this allowed millions of people to buy a home, millions of people to go back to work and you know set about creating suburbia. And of course, there were huge downsides to this. You know, re- you might have heard of redlining, uh, the ways in which African Americans and Asian Americans and Jewish Americans were excluded from these kinds of loans. But I think that not that we want to set that aside, but I think it's also important to re- remember that this is the way in which a new system is created. And what's always fascinating to me is that it's not done through government money 
even though it's a government program. So what the FHA did was set up a system of insurance and markets to connect investors with borrowers, in this case, housing developers um, and home buyers. And this is, this is just a completely novel way of thinking about how to solve problems in society that to this day, I think is just overlooked mechanism in how to think about to solve problems. It doesn't solve all problems for all times, but it certainly solved the problems of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Well, and it's kind of an odd concept when you think about being able to buy a house and pay it back over 30 years. That just, that seems like an incomprehensible period of time, but it's interesting hearing you talk about it. You have this confluence in the 20s, 30s, debt having become more legitimate. Uh, You're not viewed as a criminal if you're borrowing things. People want cars, houses, uh, and then there's this implicit or explicit, uh, depending on where you stand, I suppose, government guarantee that comes in that that starts to prop up this very long-term loan payback period, which is a novel concept. A fascinating confluence there in the early 20th century that that really made debt a, a thing much more akin to, I think, where we see it is today, which is this normal thing that everybody does. Uh, and I do want to come back to redlining because I think that there are a lot of power dynamics inherent in, in debt broadly that are important to talk about. But my final question here is this, this quote-unquote debt is good period. And, and we're skipping forward a few decades. I, I know tons happens between the, the 20s and the 30s and then the 60s and the 70s. But one of the things that is really clear in the 60s and the 70s, and in fact, the World Bank published this graph that I stumbled across – and you look at consumption by decade or by year, and the 60s and 70s are a very clear inflection point where suddenly we go from the U.S. kind of looking like most of the other countries in the world and most of the countries in the world just not being that eye-popping in terms of being consumer-driven. And then if there's a horse race in the 60s or 70s, that's when the U.S. really starts to pull away. You're going around the bend, and then suddenly there's a horse that's way, way out in front. Why did that happen in the 60s and 70s? We've gone through these things of we legitimated debt, we made it normal to get houses and cars with long-term loans. But then in the 60s and 70s, there's just such a clear debt explosion, a consumption explosion. So the post-war suburbia is literally driven to, you know, so you have cars, you have houses, both of which are borrowed for. People are also borrowing in new ways at department stores and the new shopping centers. And it's in those shopping centers and department stores that we see the origins of credit cards like we have today, this sort of everyday way we borrow for just a a pair of socks or a pair of trousers or whatever, things that can't be repossessed. Nobody wants to repossess repossess Alex's socks uh, if he doesn't pay back the debt. So the debt itself becomes a thing to be invested in. Debt itself is something to be managed and monitored. And so one of the transitions that happens in the post-war is we go from debt being uh, a necessary evil for other kinds of profit to be made within capitalism. So General Motors has an operate has GMAC, and they, they don't really make any money on their loans. They make money on the making of cars. General Electric has an entire loan operation, but they don't make any money on it. They make money on selling toasters and light bulbs. This begins to change by the late 1960s and early 70s. So the business side has that story. And also the sort of gradual drying up 
of the incredible investment opportunities of the early to late mid 20th century, where we're just in an age of technological marvels that also require huge pools of investment. So we think we're in an age of technical marvels now, and we can go into a long conversation about this. It's nothing compared to the 20th century, the 20th century where at the beginning, people are, are riding horses, uh, maybe some, some locomotives, and by the end, they are flying to space. And this is just an astonishing period of technical innovation. But from the consumer side, the story is similar there, where people in the post-war are borrowing enormous amounts of money, but they're also being paid a lot more. So that from 1945 to 1970, the median male wage rises by in real dollars from about by about 50%. Now, to put that in perspective, since 1970, the median male wage is roughly the same in the United States. So if your paycheck in real terms, if you have the same job, is going to go up by 50% over you know, 15, 20 years, that's a very different experience where it does make sense. Borrow all you want. Borrow all you want and then pay it back in cheaper inflationary dollars. And that's exactly the story. So even as Americans are borrowing a lot more, they're also paying it back. And so before 1970, the 1% paid the 99% rising wages. After 1970, roughly, the 1% just lent them money. And so the story after 1970 is the story of flatlining wages, drying up investment opportunities, and the development of new systems of lending that turn our houses less into something we want to buy and then just live in and are able to afford to more like speculative assets, which is the experience that we now all live under, right? We're all just afraid of raising interest rates because if the house prices collapse, the boomers are going to lose all their retirement. So this is more or less the intergenerational wealth politics. But I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. But that's broadly the story. And so what you have in the in the late 60s and 70s is at the same time also the revisiting of those kinds of toxic mortgages of the 1920s that are brought back, which is securitization. So ways of turning individual mortgages into assembling them together, and then selling them as a bond. And this starts in the 70s? It takes off in 1970, is the, is the first government-issued home mortgage bond uh, passed through security. And it's, it's a totally crazy idea, because before this point, um, that middle part of the 20th century, so let me, let me back it up a little. At the beginning of the 20th century, debt is personal. The middle of the 20th century, debt is a network. So if I borrow from you at your shop, they can sell that individual debt to a finance company. And that finance company keeps track of all the debts. And if the finance company needs capital, they issue a bond um, or they borrow from a bank or they do all the normal things businesses do. For mortgages, that individual mortgage would be resold. If I borrowed from you, Alex, and you had you were a bank, you would sell that mortgage to a life insurance company uh, in New York City who then wanted a 30-year mortgage because the 30-year life expectancy of an insurance would match those claims nicely. But what begins to happen in the, around 1970 is that the debt relation becomes marketized so that it's anonymous to anonymous and that no one actually holds the underlying debt purely in the form that it existed. 
And so what begins to happen starting in 1970 with the creation of what we now call Freddie Mac and um, Ginny Mae and all these other kinds of things, it allows for those house mortgages to be pulled together and sold as a bond directly to markets as opposed to being held by this intermediary. And that changes everything because then those mortgages look like any other kind of bond. So a bond for mortgages, which is sort of a dead-end investment, right? My house is not a productive asset. I like living in it, but it's not the same as having a steel mill, which creates growth. But it looks just like a steel mill. And so investors begin to say, look, where, where am I going to get the better rate of return versus the risk on this? And it begins the slow process of our economy tilting towards investing in this consumer debt rather than investing in business debt. And the same thing happens in markets, but also happens inside firms themselves. So General Electric begins its long tack away from making things to financing things. And it's tried to recover from this decision, in my opinion, very unsuccessfully. So this is this is the long story of the post-70s world. And I'm going to stop talking now because professors can go on for exactly one hour and 17 minutes whenever we're given the opportunity. No, it's fascinating. So you have an evolution in the 1900s from debt being something that it's really one-on-one to a network and then to a market. And so what the middle of the 1900s really saw, and I'm putting words in your mouth, I think, but the 1900s, the mid-1900s saw debt and lending and the investment side of that becoming a business unto itself. That's right. So what I think I heard you say then is that in the early 1900s, debt was viewed as a way to enable consumers to buy a product. And then by the end of the 1900s, and where we live today as well, debt is viewed as a business unto itself. It's a product unto itself that you can do anything with. You can buy anything with it. You can buy an iPod or an iPhone. I guess they don't make iPods anymore, but you can buy an iPhone with debt. And, And so debt is everywhere. Is that a fair evolution that it goes from an enabler to a business unto itself? That's exactly correct. It becomes institutionalized and it becomes a way to enable GE and General Motors to sell their products. And it was a place where careers went to die. You would go work in the finance department and there'd be no no opportunities to advance yourself because it was so boring and you didn't make any money. And that is the story that changes in the 60s and 70s. You'd mentioned earlier redlining and some of the problems that come along with debt. And for the final part of our conversation, I really wanted to dig into what I think of as the power dynamics inherent with what access to debt enables you or disables you from doing. It's fascinating, and I think it's easy to forget because if you're on the upper end of the credit score spectrum and the upper end of the income spectrum, debt is very easy to get. You can get the nice car, the nice house, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not true for everybody in society. And indeed, that hasn't been true since the advent of debt, I think, in a lot of ways. One of the articles I ran across that you wrote was an interesting one called Ending Discrimination, Legitimating Debt, The Political Economy of Race, Gender, and Credit Access in the 60s and 70s, Enterprise and Society. You published that back in 2011. And and what stuck out to me there is you really painted a picture uh, of, of what we've been talking about, how, how a functioning system of consumer credit is this delicate interwoven system with many, many players involved. And we talked about the 60s and 70s, but the Housing Act of 1968 attempted to correct the lack of credit access facing particularly African-Americans. 
But, and you mentioned this, it, it didn't correct the real estate agent or, or home builder issues. So it was going at the, the debt issues, but not, not kind of the practical issues when it comes to actually finding the house or building the house. Can you walk us through some of the major themes you've seen in terms of the access to consumer debt and uh, the power dynamic that that access creates? Because I, I think we're at the heart of when all these things are being figured out, the 60s and the 70s, uh, prior to then in, in some cases. But I'm, I'm really curious to hear what themes you've noticed in the course of your research. Yeah, so one of the main things to realize is that the credit system I'm describing, the installment credit system, the mortgage credit system of the 20s and 30s, is designed around a certain imaginary borrower. And that borrower is a white man who is salaried or has a steady industrial job and also is an American. So anybody who is a non-citizen, anybody who is a woman, anybody who is not white does not get access to this system as easily or in a sort of a more sort of obvious way. There are people who are African-American who get FHA loans, women get credit here and there. But on the main, this is the story for white women, the dependency on men, um, and for African-Americans, an exclusion from access to these sort of modern credit systems. So, you know, one of the things I think about a lot is historian Robin Kelly once wrote that for African-American, African-Americans have never lived in a, in a liberal democracy. They have never lived in a market economy. And you see this in the history of credit, that for African-Americans, especially, and for, for poor urban African-Americans, not suburban college-educated African-Americans, which of course existed in the sort of middle-class Black experience is quite different. But for people who are living in the ghetto, they lived in a world where they didn't have access to lots of choices, and so prices were high. They didn't have choices in terms of borrowing in different kinds of shops or through the new systems of credit cards. And so they had exploitative relationships. And the, and the riots of the 1960s reflect this as part of what I was writing about, that they would attack the places, before I wrote it, the interpretation often by historians was that these riots reflected things that poor black people didn't have, right? They didn't They didn't have access to a television or didn't have access. Well, it turns out they did. They, In fact, they would go to the places where they had bought a television, they had paid too much for it, it had been repossessed, and then they broke in and took their television back right, and then burned the debt records. And so this idea of the everyday exclusion from you know affordable credit from jobs was at the center of the urban crisis of the 1960s. And so a lot of the policies that tried to happen in the 1970s tried to address this, but also tried to address the other exclusion, which is women who, when they got married, would lose their credit identity and thus any kind of credit record, any kind of credits, what they didn't have credit scores in them, but the equivalent of a credit score. And so when women got divorced in larger numbers around 1970, because of the rise of no-fault divorce, suddenly they realized that even though they had been working and paying all the bills in the household because men are bums, they got divorced. Suddenly the bums could get, get their gas turned on and buy a new car, and they could not. And so there was a double movement in the 70s to provide access to credit to African-Americans in robust ways and provide access to uh, women. But of course, behind this is the intersection with class, that 
they worked very well for middle class and um, more affluent women and African Americans. But the of the reality of its effect on poorer people was different and didn't have the same kind of wealth building effects that it had had in the post war period. Because during the post war, wages were rising for for black people, for white people, for everybody. And after 1970, they were not. So just at the moment when certain kinds of marginal groups got access to credit was exactly the moment when that credit turns from being a wealth creator in the sense of buying a house, watching increase in value, to being a wealth eroder. Because when your income isn't rising over time, it's more of a zero-sum game. Then you're just saying, I have a certain amount of money over the course of my life, and I'm getting a percentage taken away and it's not going up at all. So it's a very different story. So that, in, in short, that's the story of what happened there. And in an attempt to provide greater access, we see the shift from individual. We see this, this sort of shift to universal credit records. This is a push by um, women's rights groups who said we need to have everybody tracked. We need to have everybody have their own individual credit score, which was new in the '70s, so that they could borrow at the end of their marriages. And so that's also the moment when debt is legitimated in this way, and the credit score is legitimated, and the idea of tracking all of us for any reason is legitimated. That's fascinating. Everything we were talking about a few minutes ago with this incredible explosion in consumer debt, really the big asterisk there in the 1900 to 1970 period is it's really an amazing explosion if you're a white male with a steady job. Is that fair? Which is a huge chunk of the population, right? So we're talking, you know, 85% of the population is white. Half of those are male, more or less. And a lot of the other half of those white people are married to the other half. So we're talking about a large fraction of the population, but there are systematic exclusions. And then when you get into the time period where people are realizing that these things need to be fixed, it's kind of a day late and a dollar short because you're you're coming out of this 50% rise in wages right around 1970. When that period ends, suddenly we're making it more equitable for women and for minorities. But that's exactly when, to your point, the 50% increase in wages has happened. It's, it's over. So now we're in this sideways movement for wages. And I, I think that that narrative has kind of continued to present day where debt is viewed as something that's keeping people down in large part rather than enabling people to build wealth. Not that the wealth building is absent from the conversation, but a lot of the conversation is around debt, keeping people down. Student loans in particular, I think, are a part of the narrative. Yeah, and part of the story is the nature of what that debt is for. So in the 1970s, so just as people, more people are able to borrow, you also have an incredible inflationary period, right? So if you own a house in 1968 uh, and you borrow a mortgage on it and then you just hold it for 15 years, nearly all of your debt is erased by the inflation of the 1970s because you're paying it back in cheaper dollars, right? Whereas if you don't own a house in 1968, so you buy a house in 1978, you're looking at a period of very high interest rates, high inflation, that's just a harder place to build a lot of wealth. And so the story of that sort of intergenerational wealth is that story. It's a story of the 1970s. And it's the way we think about houses now as more as speculative assets rather than just like one big consumption. And that gets us, that sort of brings us up to the 1990s when securitization goes from being just about housing to being also about credit cards. 
And so the, f- the fueling of debt in the 1990s, when it really gets out of control, is the story of this securitization of all our debt. So all debt is now backed by markets. And this, the companies that decide whether or not we are borrowing too much don't realize that people are using home equity loans to pay down their credit cards. So they overlend in so many different ways to consumers. So with through these new equity loans, which are fine as long as your home value keeps going up. But as soon as that crashes in 2008, the whole system begins to unwind and we get to the Great Recession. In that same article I mentioned earlier, there was a line that stood out to me. You wrote the the call for judging individuals on their merits went against 50 years of lending practices. And you've touched on this a couple times, but my impression is that from an underwriting perspective, we morph from underwriting people according to the group they belong to, to some extent. And you mentioned this, the credit score coming out in the, the 60s and the 70s with women's rights movements in particular. But we live in an environment today where it's an intrinsically individualistic underwriting, where it's it's you and your credit score and your income. Can you walk us through a little bit that inflection point and why that changed? Because it's very counterintuitive. A modern person thinking about underwriting you just as part of a group you're in, as opposed to you, Lewis. Yeah, I mean, let's just start with marriage. So I remember talking to John Reed, who was the guy at Citibank who really brought them into the credit card business. And he told me that when they in the late 1970s, and when he when they first started the business, they developed a credit model based on data, trying to look at the factors they had on people. And so they would say they'd have your race and your gender, your marital status, your income, everything about you that you can write down on a checklist. And what they found was that they tried to solve the math to predict whether or not someone would default on a loan. And what they found was it basically was a predictor for divorce, that it is actually really, really hard to separate the social conditions under which we live from our financial stability. So it's true that Black people are discriminated against. That discrimination has an effect on their future income streams. And so you'll see it in the data. You'll see it saying Black people are discriminated against and therefore has nothing to do with their intrinsic character or choices. It has to do with the fact that white people want to not give them the same kind of job stability as they give other white people. And so that has an effect in the math when you run the regression. And so does marriage, and so does age, and so does all these other things. And so turning that into something that is not about those predictive categories of predictive power um, is very, very difficult. And it's it's uh, something that we really still haven't overcome. And so what happens is you, as soon as they start to try and do this to eliminate racism and sexism um, in a world where racism and sexism still exist in the labor market, they just find proxies for these other kinds of variables, things like zip code. And so they begin to try to eliminate zip code. And so it's, it's very, very difficult to cordon off credit from the rest of the you know, labor market and financial market that people live under. And that's a for me, it was a very depressing realization. Right? I like the idea that we can talk about people without talking about 
those other kinds of characters. But as soon as I realized, I was like, of course that's true. Of course it's true. You'd have to believe that black people have the same kind of, you know, guarantees in 1970 that white people do, which is absolutely not the case. So I think that it is one of the struggles that credit lenders still have today when they're trying to think about how to balance equity and risk. And it's true for white investors. It's true for black investors. So one of the other things that came out in the research was that if you look at black-owned banks in the 1960s and 70s, they had a, a choice. They had a choice between investing in their own neighborhoods, you know, or they had a choice of investing in white neighborhoods. And they chose white neighborhoods again and again because the choice for them was between where to minimize the risk for the returns on their investments. And black neighborhoods, black businesses, black mortgages were riskier than for white businesses and white neighborhoods. And for me, this really reveals this kind of racial, the deep racial structure of American capitalism um, that you can see in this moment. There's obviously a dark underbelly to credit and credit access. And, and we just talked about that for a while. But what I wonder is, looking at where we are in 2022, has all or most of that been fixed or addressed? Are we in a golden age of consumer debt where it can be accessed with more equity than ever before? Has technology driven massive improvements in that? Is this the best time ever? <laughs> Have we fixed any of those issues or are we still just wallowing in that same old muck of issues just like we were back in the 60s and 70s? I, I still think there are racial inequities in American society today. I think there's inequities along lines of, of gender. I do think it's better than it was in 1970, for sure. But And we also have more data on people so that we can say it's not just a loose proxy for race and sort of racial discrimination. We can put that into conversation with other data points about someone's work history or the history of where they live or other kinds of things about them. So I think it's possible with thicker data to have that. But of course, the world we live in today is, is still very speculative. We still live in an era of speculative housing where houses are treated not as a, just a big consumer good, but as something that creates value, which historically is not true. And it makes sense as soon as you think about it, because houses are not productive assets. We're also live, still living in a place where it's far easier to borrow as a consumer than as a business. So we still don't have, I mean, there's been experiments, but we don't have robust business loan securitization, which would make it possible for small and medium-sized enterprises to borrow and expand. And to me, this is the great tragedy of American capitalism since 1970, that we've made it easier and easier and easier to borrow as a consumer, and we've made it harder and harder to borrow as a business. And why is that? Why is it, Alex? Yeah, it's really because we just made it so easy to borrow for houses. And then that how we the experience of that led investors to have places like Citibank, to have uh, the securitization of credit cards. And it's just a money machine. But if, if you were a time traveler and you went back into the 1800s and said, in 2022, do you think it'll be easier for a business or consumer to borrow? I don't think any sane person would say consumer based on the conversation we've had today. That's a very weird historical moment that we're in. I also think in 2022, if you ask people, whether it makes more sense to make it easier to 
not just, I'm not, I'm not talking about tech startups, okay? We're like you and your idiot cousin develop an app together. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a plumbing supply business. I'm talking about a restaurant that's been in business for 15 years. I'm talking about those kinds of enterprises with a solid track record, not just like some dumb app. That's what I'm talking about. That is nearly, uh, it's very, very difficult to get commercial loans from banks. The paperwork, because they have to hold on to that loan with their own money. They can't resell that loan to a market. And the answer you get is, well, Lewis, this is not, uh, the business loans are always very unique and quite different. And you can't, you can't treat them like you treat a house or a car. It's like, yes, you can. I've been to my house. I've been to other houses. I've never been to the same house twice. In fact, all houses are different. We evaluate them based on a set of qualities that we value. And we say, this is the value of this quality, you know, how big it is, how many bedrooms, you know, the school quality, et cetera. You can do the same things for, for businesses. And in fact, it's easier for businesses because they have accounting statements with profit and loss. And so those qualities can be boiled down to very few things, inventory, you know, working capital, all the things you learn in a boring accounting class. So it's very, but the difference is there's not the political will. There's not the political will to create a robust uh, system backed by the government in collaboration for private business. And uh, we have the Small Business Administration, which if you look at the amounts that they lend out as is, is a rounding error, the assets under management in capitalism, and it just doesn't matter. It's just a, a Band-Aid on what should be a robust system, you know, kickstarted by the government, but then taken over just like mortgages are by the private sector. And so I think for me, this is this would be an incredible policy intervention uh, that would allow for the rebalancing of capitalism so that we could, all of us could benefit, all of us would benefit if businesses grew and there was more demand for our services as workers, or even for the, the few of us that do it successfully for our, us as owners and not just venture capital for a few weird tech startups, but for plumbing supply companies, which are not as sexy, but actually is a much more important part of the economy. And looking at consumer debt, is there any one thing that really sticks out as the biggest area of improvement that you think still needs to be addressed? I mean, I think the problem with debt is not the debt itself, but our, the ability to repay that debt. And so I think we are living in a time of not just inequality in terms of income, but inequality in terms of income volatility. And whereas we're all aware of income inequality, we're all aboard by it now because we're people. Income volatility is not discussed as much. And so a few years ago, JP Morgan Chase Institute, which is, as you know, is a part of a bank and not some sort of left-wing think tank, uh, they released a report. Yeah, right. This is not a set of Bolsheviks at JP Morgan, right? Yeah, they're in the belly of the beast. Yeah, exactly. They're they're right there. So the they released a report that I was stunned by, which was that for the median household in America, the average household, a little over half of those households have month-to-month fluctuation in their incomes of 30%. 30%, right? And for the bottom, the bottom quartile, the bottom 25% of those bottom 25%, three quarters have month-to-month fluctuations of 30%. And this is because they're changing jobs. This is because this is uh, about 90% of it is within job variation. So people who work shifts at a restaurant 
or shifts at a warehouse or and can't get enough hours at their jobs, things that the salaried top 20% have no imagination of, right? No idea of like how to make, get enough hours in the work week. For these people, it's impossible to plan. Do you plan for the middle? Do you plan for the top? Do you plan for the bottom? How do you plan it all? And so for these people, debt can be both very dangerous, uh, but it could also be very essential because it allows them to smooth over their income. So I think we're just living in an, an economy where stability is gone. And we look to debt to shore up that instability in a lot of ways. And this is actually why I wrote my last book about why jobs became so unstable, because at the end of writing these books about debt... Right, the, the gig economy, right? The gig economy, but sort of the deep history of how you know, at the top, middle, and bottom of work, we've replaced ourselves with um, consultants and temps and migrant laborers as a way that, to reorganize our economy. And it's created a world where we don't know where our next dollar is coming from as clearly as we did in 1960. And so that's the story of that book, you know, why we would move away from a very stable world and what was at stake. That's another conversation. But I do think that this is the big question for consumer debt, you know, not isn't the debt itself, but, you know, what it means for the rest of our lives in terms of stability and, of course, access to refrigerators and houses and all the things that make life easier. Final question, and I like to ask this to everybody that I, I speak with on the show. What lesson or lessons have you learned from your study of the history of consumer debt that you think can be applied to today's world? And I, I'm fully aware that when we're talking about consumer debt, you can drive a truck through that. That's a very broad question. But what, what lessons do you think you've learned? I think my takeaway from consumer debt is that it worked really well in the post-war period when it was a way to sort of lubricate the gears of capitalism, that it allowed for people to buy more, which meant they could have better jobs and get paid more. But it was never seen as an end in itself. It was a means to an end. And it, I think it worked really well in that, that period. Um, e even asterisking the, exclude, the racial exclusions, which I don't think are necessary for the, that system to exist. It just was something that people wanted because they're terrible. But I think that worked really well in this way. And it led to an incredible prosperity. And I think after 1970, we really moved towards a place where consumer debt was an end in itself, you know, and it was a way to make money without doing anything else. And pure finance became where the big money was. And I think that's kind of one of the ways America went wrong. And I think that it's. It's, it's obvious today. One of the reasons we have such massive inequality is it's you make more money by moving money around than by making things or even making services or making ideas. And it's something that I think we all know is not working well for our democracy. Well, Professor Lewis Hyman, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And again, you can find more about his writing at www.lewishyman.com. And once more, he is the director of the Institute for Workplace Studies at the ILR School at Cornell University. This is the end of the fourth episode of Riches and Power. And as always, if you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends, give us a good review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. This has been a production of Riches and Power, hosted by Alex Dubay 
edited by Sean Dooley. Copyright 2022 by Wesley Capital, LLC.